This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out of your own, always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust? Hello, this is Ayana Young, and I welcome you to For the Wild Podcast. For those of you who have listened to Unlearn and Rewild over the last few years, welcome to the first episode of the show under a new name. We are happy to announce the launch of For the Wild, a podcast and a broader organization that we have been incubating during the last few years. The concept is to take on earth renewal in a tangible sense. We are in the midst of creating a large-scale native tree and plants nursery in the coastal mountains of southern Cascadia, that we will keep you up to date with and invite you to help with as this project unfolds. As we join in this work, we are very grateful for the numerous exceptional teachers who have come into our lives through the radio program and other ways across the networks of biocentrics and earth defenders. We have learned of more than a few of these visionaries through the Bioneers Conference, the annual summit that for 27 years has taken place in the San Francisco Bay Area where thousands of people come together with a shared interest in environmental and social issues, including frontline and native activists, artists, public intellectuals, authors, scientists, entrepreneurs, permaculturalists, children, and students, basically the gamut of earth-minded citizens. Today we are joined by the co-founder of Bioneers, Nina Simons, Nina is an award-winning social entrepreneur and visionary thinker. In 1990, she co-founded Bioneers with her husband and partner. As president, she has helped to lead the organization through 27 years of identifying, gathering, and disseminating breakthrough innovations that reveal a positive and life-honoring future that's within our grasp today. 
And for those of you who are interested in attending the Bioneers Conference this October 21st through 23rd, you can use the coupon code FORTHEWILD15 and receive a special discount. Nina, welcome to For the Wild podcast. It is just incredible to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Ayana. Thank you for your good work. It's really exciting. Oh, thank you. What you have done for the earth is absolutely astounding over the last nearly three decades of building the Bioneers platform and keeping this community of truth seekers and truth enactors very well fed. So my first question for you is broad, and you're welcome to take it in any direction, but here we go. Of the many ideas and perspectives that Bioneers has advanced, would you say any of them have joined the ranks of common knowledge? And what is the general public more resistant to accepting? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Well, in a sense, the most obvious response comes to me as the same answer for both questions, Ayana, which is that the thing that I think has reached the widest acceptance or at least awareness is climate change. You know, when we began in 1990, few people had even heard of climate change. Um, And what we discovered to our chagrin very quickly was that uh, the people who were doing the most about it were actually the extractive industries. So when we went to attend education conferences because we knew that what was happening at Bioneers had broad application for curriculum at many levels, what we found was huge, well-funded displays of environmental education that were being put forth and distributed free of charge to educators at these conferences that really formed the basis, I believe, of what we would all call climate deniers today. You know, if you think about that for 23 or four or five years, those curriculum teaching people that climate change was a natural phenomena and was not human induced is a long time. And I think we're seeing the results of it today. So in a sense, that's the biggest idea that I think has gained the most traction, as well as the healing capacity, both ecologically and in our human bodies of mushrooms and fungi. As you mentioned earlier, that the work of For the Wild will include working with mycelia and fungi um, to help regenerate ecosystems. Um, So I think that's an idea that has gained a great deal of traction. And and I think that, well, there are two more. Biomimicry, I think, is growing rather rapidly as an idea. And when we first helped introduce it, with the onset of Janine Benyus's really seminal book, Biomimicry, in 1998. Of course, no one had heard of it, and it was a new idea, but I think the Biomimicry Institute and many other biomimics have helped to spread that idea in significant ways. And then 
the last one that I think has grown immensely over the years is the recognition of the interdependence of social justice and ecological uh, health and restoration. I think through the environmental justice movements and through the climate justice movement and through some very persevering efforts on the part of pioneers and a lot of other brilliant practitioners, there's been a much greater public awareness of the kind of intersectionality and interdependence of justice and environment. Um, and what has the public been most resistant to? I would say in many ways, I believe that people are most resistant to informed and engaged action around climate and, and even also perhaps around racial justice and around um, taking a stand against the corporate destruction of our home. You know, I just came from a recent gathering that was focused on public lands and on the shift in uh, awareness and kind of paradigm that people are going through in terms of how we understand our relationship to Mother Earth. And in the course of that gathering, I had some very interesting discussions, especially about how many layers people need to go through before they get to the place of saying, I'm willing to act and even willing to engage in what might be dangerous activity in order to protect or defend our home. So I think all those layers involve dimensions of resistance to acting on behalf of systemic change. You know, I think, I think people are much more prone to act individually. And yet, as we know, both racial justice and gender justice and earth justice all require systemic shifts and economic justice all require systemic shifts. And I think there's a lot of resistance to knowing how to engage there. Wow, I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for that analysis. And I'm wondering, what are the barriers to embracing direct action on a larger scale, or at least supporting that as a individual or a group? Hmm. <laughs> what a good question. I am not sure that I know the answer, but if I were to hazard a guess, I would say that I think the barriers are numerous, and I think they are probably somewhat um, different for each individual. Uh, I think there's a, there's a barrier that has to do with the simple fact of self-preservation and a kind of fear around putting oneself in harm's way. I think that's part of it. I think we also have a lot of conditioning, um, depending on who we are, but as a woman of Jewish and therefore Anglo descent, I would say that I have identified conditioning in myself that has caused me in the past 
to kind of smooth over racial difference and even uh, the discomfort of sitting with another's trauma or pain. Um, and, and it's required me to actually uh, turn towards building some courage and some muscle in myself on a psychological level to be able to keep turning towards how do I develop my own capacity to stay in that conversation so that I can act on behalf of the world I want. I think also because our societal conditioning has led us to be so individualistic in our orientation, you know, that hyper-individualism has caused us to not have a lot of practice or tools at acting collectively. And so I think even the formation of our movements tend to be somewhat factionalized. And we're just not all that skillful or all that practiced at collaborating toward greater impacts. Environmental movements have historically been on separate tracks as human rights or women's movements, etc. But in this time of convergent crises, it's undeniable that these challenges are inseparable. And just as corporate polluters are merging, the resistance must also merge. Bioneers has been instrumental in connecting these movements and showing how the environmental movement really must broaden its aims to remain relevant. Could you speak about how your ideas about activism as a holistic endeavor have evolved through the years of Bioneers? And would you share some of those connections you draw between issues of ecology and race, class, and gender disparities? It's a wonderful question, Ayana. Thank you. 
Let's see, to begin on the activism piece. I think when we first started Bioneers, I didn't consider myself an activist. I considered myself a communicator and a producer, um, but I thought of activism in a very uh, prescribed way as people who demonstrated and got arrested or did direct actions. And uh, those were not forms of activism that I was readily called toward. And I think that over the years, my exposure to Bioneers and all the diverse leaders that we have featured there really helped me to broaden my understanding of what activism can be. Because I've come to understand that there are as many ways to respond to the multiple uh, interdependent crises and challenges we face as there probably are human beings on the planet. And that uh, communication is absolutely a form of activism, and so is raising children, and so is being a teacher or a hospice worker or a politician or policymaker, you know, that there are just so many forms of activism and that we are in a process, as Meg Wheatley so beautifully describes, of hospicing old systems into death that aren't working and are falling apart in big chunks at the same time as others of us are giving birth to new forms and, and that, you know, there are many, many places on that arc of evolutionary societal change where people can engage. So I think that's how Bioneers has helped me redefine activism as a holistic endeavor. And then drawing some of the connections among ecology, race, class, and gender. Let's see. Well, I would have to say what first called me to Bioneers was my deep, deep love of an affinity for nature. I had learned in my childhood that nature was the place I went to um, for healing, for regeneration, for solace when I was hurting. And although I grew up in New York City, nature became my deep connection and ally. And so that was what first drew me to Bioneers. And then I kind of had this sequential awakening about how all those other ways that we divide up human beings uh, relate to our ecological crises. And what I saw was that when we first started Bioneers, we actually imagined that people working on different elements of ecological restoration would be much more connected with each other than they actually are. I think one of our first misapprehensions, Ayana, was that we thought, well, surely the people working on river restoration and the people working on wetlands and the people working on oceans will not only know each other, but in many cases might be collaborating. And in fact, one of the startling early revelations was that not only did they rarely know each other, 
but often they were in competition for scarce funding and that there was tremendous value in bringing them together to introduce them so that they could begin to cross-pollinate learning and solutions and accelerate the learning of the field. So I think one of our first big ahas with Bioneers was the degree of factionalization that existed even within an environmental movement that, as you mentioned earlier, was historically predominantly white, predominantly middle class, but yet still wildly factionalized. And then early in my experience with Bioneers, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some First Nations or Aboriginal leaders. In 1992, I heard an extraordinary man from Picaris Pueblo. We were hosting a discussion about the 500-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus coming upon this land. And he actually said, 500 years ago, you came and we welcomed you with open arms. And if you came again today, we would do the same. And I remember the feeling, Ayana, of my jaw dropping open and thinking, holy cow, and he meant it. And I thought, I have so much to learn about being a human being, about forgiveness, about redemption, about relationship from these people who are our elders. You know, at Bioneers, we sometimes refer to indigenous people as not only the first Bioneers, but the old growth cultures who live among us. And, um, and so that was sort of a beginning awakening for me around race and racial justice. And then, of course, the more that I got to know and heard uh, people of all colors and classes speak, the more that I understood the degree to which our culture operates in a hierarchical paradigm that tends to devalue people of color, people of lower income, and ultimately women as well. I didn't have my own kind of gender awakening until I was nearly approaching 40. It was in the mid-90s, and I had always assumed coming out of college that I was stepping onto a relatively level playing field and that I owed a great debt of gratitude to the first waves of feminist movement. And it wasn't until I was working in my 30s that I began to realize and have the experience of sitting in a boardroom and saying something and having it fall on deaf ears. And then the man next to me saying it with slightly different language and everybody kind of nodding their heads and saying, what a great idea. Um, And I began to understand how bifurcated our society still is around issues of gender. And really over the last 11 years, I would say, Ayana, I've been gathering women in a project that I co-founded, and we do six-day immersion 
trainings with 20 women at a time called Cultivating Women's Leadership. And through that work, I've really had many, many experiences and formed very deep friendships with women from many different cultures. And as I have learned their stories and experienced both the physical impacts of living in communities where the worst toxic health issues and exposures happen and the toxic psychic impacts and psychological impacts of intergenerational trauma through indigenous communities and mestizo communities and black communities, it has awakened me to the experience that I believe that as women, because we all have some inkling of what it's like to be valued less than, it gives us an empathic window on injustice. And so for me, the last 11 years has just been this giant awakening and recognition that traditional cultures and indigenous Aboriginal cultures have keys to our ecological restoration that are essential to our survival as a species, and that just like in nature, the systems with the greatest biodiversity are the ones that are most resilient and most capable of rebounding after trauma, our human systems are exactly the same. And so not only valuing diversity and certainly beyond tolerating diversity, I think we have to get to a place of celebrating and recognizing the essentialness of our human diversity toward regenerating our relationship with ourselves, each other, and the earth, which I believe are all octaves of the same relational imbalance that we've inherited. We As North Dakota militarizes its response to the Standing Rock protest, the racial injustices that the tribes have suffered for centuries are being cast again into the spotlight. Even today, poverty, incarceration, and unemployment rates among Native Americans in North Dakota are some of the highest in the country. As we speak for the first time in modern history, we see 200 indigenous nations uniting to protect water and more broadly to protect their role as earth guardians. 
So do you believe the climate movement will continue moving towards uplifting indigenous priorities, perspectives, and leadership? And how would that benefit the movement? It's interesting how you phrase that. I'm I'm not 100% sure that I believe the climate movement will, but I sure am throwing everything I know in that direction. So I, I hope it will, I pray it will, and I'm doing everything I can to help it align in that way. You know, I think that the movements of Idle No More and the Climate Justice Alliance, I think that there are a number of rather large-scale movements that are orienting increasingly towards honoring the role of First Nations Indigenous people as leaders of that movement. And in reality, they may be some of the leaders, but I think we're going to need many, many, many leaders and leaders of all colors and of all ages. And I think that that leadership is emergent right now. And, you know, what's happening at Standing Rock is simultaneously incredibly exciting and deeply tragic, as you say. The militarized response is not dissimilar to other pretty large-scale native uprisings that have occurred in the past. But the advent of social media and of some independent media sources like Amy Goodman is making it harder for that to happen in a way that's invisible to the larger public. So I think the visibility of it is a tremendous help. And I know that in addition to the representatives of more than 200 sovereign nations who are there in Standing Rock, there are a great many non-Native people at Standing Rock now. And to me, that's part of what's most exciting about what's happening there is the openness and receptivity in spite of all the history that tells them to be mistrustful of non-Native allies the continued openness and welcoming and true generosity of spirit that's welcoming the non-Native allies who are showing up there. Um, I do believe that Native people have a, a, an essential role in leading the climate revolution that I believe is to come. And of course, it's not only a climate revolution, as you point out, it's about water, it's about clean air, it's about the future of our children, and it's about the future of ourselves, to be blunt. And so, and it's about rebelling against the corporate state, which in many ways is what makes Standing Rock different than past Native stands, because in the past it was government who were quashing Native rebellions, and I think this time it's banks, it's corporations who are behind what's happening there. And I don't think that our government was as influenced or dominated by corporate control as it is now in the past. And, and to respond to the last bit of your question, Ayana, my hope and prayer is that the visibility of Indigenous and Aboriginal people leading this movement of movements will help translate into a shift in our worldview 
because there is a way that I keep learning from indigenous friends um, and acquaintances, the depth of how they relate to every aspect of life around us as a living relation. You know, this gathering that I was just at, there was a remarkable uh, Lakota man named Tiokasin who uh, broadcasts radio out of New York. And we were doing a soil ceremony. And he said, in my language, the word we use to describe this, meaning the soil, means who we used to be. And I thought that was such a profound way of invoking the longer time frame that many indigenous folks live with, the recognition that the soil is who we used to be and that we will go back to being soil after our brief experience in human form on this planet. And a whole different kind of perspective and respect of relational intelligence than our Western culture has been raised to recognize. So my hope is that indigenous people's centrality to this movement of movements will help accelerate culture shift and a real shift in worldview that's so needed right now. As you've alluded to, Generosity and mutual aid characterize many indigenous societies around the world. But in capitalist societies where greed is rewarded, sacrifice is almost nonsensical. It's a major hurdle to overcome, this aversion to sacrifice. And it prevents people from making substantial commitments to positive change. You've spent much of your life in service, and I'd love to hear from your point of view, what would be needed for us as a society to shift towards a culture of simplicity and service, to overcome our energy-intense lifestyles, to break that inertia? (laughs) You ask such big (laughs) questions. They're just wonderful, and they cause me to have to go deep inside myself to see how I'm going to respond. Thank you. And, and please um, take your time. I know they're very large <laughs> questions, and, and I know that so many people, no matter what age, are searching and looking to others and looking inside themselves for these answers as well. One of the things that my own journey has brought me to is a real inquiry around how we are reinventing leadership in this time. Because I came to an awareness that what was most needed from everyone was leadership, and that our inherited model of leadership was not one that many people I knew could wholeheartedly embrace. One of the things that I've grappled with is the question of sacrifice. And... When I first started looking at it, I thought, why does leadership necessarily have to involve sacrifice? Maybe that's part of the old paradigm. Maybe it doesn't have to involve sacrifice. And and when I look back on 
the me that asked that question, I sort of have to chuckle to myself because of her naivete. Because life has taught me that there is sacrifice that's somehow often integral to real leadership. And that, as an example, Kenny and I, Kenny is my husband and partner who I co-founded Bioneers with, and we ran Bioneers for eight years with almost no compensation, basically doing it in our spare time on top of our day jobs. And we did it because we loved it. We did it because it felt really important and necessary to us. We certainly didn't do it for personal gain. And at the end of those eight years, we were plumb near exhausted. And we were starting to question whether we should be giving it up when a donor came along and gave us a massive five-year, seven-figure grant. So it was kind of a crazy sacrifice at the beginning there. And I think a lot of people would look at that and say, you did what? You know, you did this as a volunteer effort on top of your day jobs for eight years? That's crazy. So I think part of what's needed is that we don't have a lot of role models for new models of leadership these days. And I think one of the things that's important to helping shift our culture is to see examples of leaders who have embraced leadership in a wholehearted way and often who have made their peace with sacrifice as a part of that. People often appreciate Bioneers for how much good it's done in the world, and they don't know the sacrifice that underlies it. And so in a certain sense, and I think it's part of our old model of heroic leadership that we didn't talk about the sacrifice, and maybe part of what's the new model of leadership that integrates all of our human capacities means being vulnerable enough to say, well, there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. And to do that in a joyous way that says, yeah, there are things, there are risks that I have taken that have led to some of the most rewarding moments in my life. And I would not retrace my steps and undo those risks or those sacrifices for any amount of money. I think part of the answer to your question lies in lifting up role models of all races and backgrounds and ages and genders so that we can all see that there are elements of working for the common good that provide a level of meaning and fulfillment to the essence of our lives that so outweigh any monetary gain, you know, and One of the things that I have found as a kind of guiding principle in my life is a quote by the Austrian physicist Fritjof Capra, and he said, the shift to an eco-literate society, a society that knows how to live in right relationship to nature, involves a shift from an emphasis on counting things and amassing things from quantity to mapping relationships to quality, and in a sense, from a goal orientation to one that's much more process-oriented. And so I think one of the ways we can shift from this egocentric, me-centric, 
greed-centric culture to one that is more collaboratively, communally oriented is to focus on relationships as the things that give us the greatest meaning in our lives. And those relationships are not only to the human world, but to the more than human world, to the elements, to the ancestors, to the plants and animals and fungi. So I think for me, one of the most fulfilling and meaningful aspects of my life has been that dedication to all my relations. Thank you, Nina, for sharing those thoughts and some of your personal sacrifices. And it's a question I've been thinking about for a while as I moved on to raw land a little over two years ago, living in a tent through, thankfully, very rainy winters and and just a number of different things as we're moving through this extremely overconsumptive system and and trying to look deeply into what actually is fulfilling what does real purpose feel like and how can we actually reciprocate and sacrifice for what we love the more than human world as you so beautifully put it your voice saying I am not hearing if you are not naming it I am not stopping if you are not changing it here are my hands let's see what they're making in the morning in the rise up there's a bridge from all that's been in the dawning the vines are pushing through the pavement we were born of burning hearts we are tearing off the reins from the ground up we will build it My next question takes a bit different direction, and I know that you have a background in marketing, and I'd like to pick that part of your brain too. (laughs) So it's interesting because marketing usually works in the realm of illusions in consumer society, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how to apply the principles of successful marketing to movement building. Instead of manufacturing desire for a dead product per se, we are trying to ignite a desire for forests to return, for wildlife to return. So we have this major advantage there. You know, life is on our side. What a great question. You know, I think that (laughs) my, my experience with marketing really came out of the blue in my life in that as I began to understand that I had some capacity to evoke, you know, a meaningful response in other people, 
a mentor of mine told me that I could sell ice to Eskimos. And I thought that was one of the creepiest reflections I had ever received until I <laughs> sat with it for a while and thought, well, what if marketing is about selling ideas? What about if marketing is about sharing a worldview that can really help people orient towards a more vital and regenerative life? You know, one of the things that I think of often is actually something that I heard Paul Hawkins say once. And he said, we just have to make it more appealing to play in our sandbox, you know. And I do think that when I think about marketing and my own experience with it, which has always been socially oriented and community based, I think about how we as creatures are designed to be social. And we have, I think, a really innate yearning for belonging and for connection. It's one of the things that I have probably heard most in all these years from people who come to Bioneers is, oh my gosh, I feel like I finally found my tribe. And, you know, the truth is, it's a constellation of communities, Bioneers, and I think what's appealing about it, and I think this is an important idea when we think about the movement of movements that we're seeking to inspire and ignite and bring together, is that it has both uh, pluralism and real respect for the differences among all of us and a sense of a unifying field. And so how... You know, for me, the question with respect to marketing is how to invite people in a kind of two-handed invitation, one hand which is beckoning their whole uniqueness and not having to leave any of themselves behind in order to participate, and the other hand which is invoking a kind of higher purpose that has a kind of universality you know, don't we all want a future where our children are ensured a chance to live among a vibrant and diverse world? Don't we want a future where there is clean water and food and shelter enough for everyone? Don't we all want a future where our leaders are chosen for their capacity to receive guidance? Something like that, you know? I believe that our challenge is to speak to people's deepest yearnings instead of, as you described, the toxic mimic that advertising or marketing tends to be that's about creating a false need or addressing a real need with a false Band-Aid solution. You know, you'll feel freedom if you have a BMW. I think we all have a yearning for freedom and for justice and for peace and for beauty and for real, loving, intimate relationship with ourselves, each other, and the earth. And so speaking to the depth of those truths in a way that has authenticity and modeling it through our actions, I think, is essential for calling forward everyone's best participation.
Absolutely. And I think back to something you said earlier in the interview, it can sometimes be challenging for people who are interested in the same things to really learn how to work together or even know of each other. And I'm wondering, what are some ways that you're experiencing where collaboration is really taking off? And what are some of those tools that we can all keep in mind when we're trying to build these regenerative projects with others? Huh. Honestly, I feel like I am in a process of trying to identify those tools and really codify them so that they can be more accessible to all of us. But I think one thing that I would say is that intimate relationship is one of the hardest spiritual practices, perhaps the hardest, that I have encountered in my life. And I think anyone who is in a very long-term relationship, who's paying attention, would likely agree. And that it's no accident that our divorce rate is as high as it is, because we get so little training in how to be in effective, close relationships. But, you know, some of what I can offer, Ayana, would be to say, building collaborative uh, tissue takes time. It takes practice, just like anything else. Um, I think one of the principles that I found really helpful, and this has come out of our women's leadership work, but it's true for people of any gender, is to prioritize relationship over task, to actually take the time to really build relationship and to choose to share intimate stories because they help you understand why you may be coming from differing perspectives when you do. Because I think one of our greatest challenges as human beings is we tend to think that people who think like us are smart and people who don't think like us are not. And because of that, we tend to form into groups of like-minded people, which is understandable, but it's not so very helpful for movement building or collaboration. So one of the ideas that I have found as a countervailing force to that tendency is the notion that comes from my friend Jeanette Armstrong, who's an extraordinary First Nations educator from the Okanagan people in British Columbia. And in her tradition, they practice something called the Four Societies, or Inaukinwe, it's called. And in that tradition, what they say is that the most valuable perspective that anyone can bring me is one that's 180 degrees opposed from my own, because that requires me to be able to expand my thinking and my vision enough to incorporate their perspective. And I think, wow, how would the world be different if we all practiced that? So I think the clearest offerings I can respond with are to suggest prioritizing relationship ahead of task, to give time and space for that relationship to evolve and mature, to recognize that partnership or collaboration is a practice, and to make some agreements about what happens when you don't agree and what happens when you might inadvertently 
trigger an emotional response in someone else? And how are you going to deal with that? If you talk about those things at the front end and make some agreements about them, that can really help because those eruptions often, often happen. And they happen not by intention, but because privilege comes with blinders and we often don't know another's reality enough to be able to avoid offending them. And so we inadvertently say or do things that offend. And if we know in advance, and we've talked about the likelihood that that might happen, we might make agreements around how do we name it when something like that happens? And how do we agree to respond to it? Do we take a break for five or 10 minutes and then re-meet to try to unpack what happened? You know, what is our commitment about how we're going to move through that? And I think one of the guiding principles that's been really helpful to me also comes from a teacher named Donna Markova. And she says, the durability and the elasticity and the flexibility of relationships are a function of how we navigate rupture and repair. Because all our relationships, whether they're parent-child or sibling or partner or colleague or friend or life partner, all of our relationships will encounter ruptures. And when the rupture happens, it's whether and how we choose to turn back towards repair that confers strength and resilience to our relationships. So that's what I would offer. Thank you so much. You were saying at the beginning of really being able to commit to sitting in the discomfort sometimes and not running away. And I know a lot of that's come up with racial justice issues and white privilege. If we give space and give time and love and dedication and commitment, we can really grow through a lot of these messy growing pains and work together in a new regenerative way. That's so true. And I think, you know, part of what I hear you pointing towards Ayana is uh, what's sometimes labeled white fragility. And, mm. uh, you know, I, part of my own experience with racial justice work has been the recognition that when I look back on my own naivete about racial justice and the ways that I imagined myself on the, quote, right side of the equation when I really knew so little. What, part of what I've learned is that guilt and shame don't have a lot of use value in this work. I have a little embarrassment about how naive I was, and I have some embarrassment about how long it took me to awaken to a deeper reality. But when I compare you know, the tendency toward guilt and shame and embarrassment to the kinds of abuse and violence that people of color have been subject to in this country for so long. It's just not even remotely comparable. And it causes me to say, I want to hold myself to a higher standard than to dissolve into guilt and shame when discomfort arises. And be willing to sit 
as you say, in the discomfort of not knowing and a kind of simultaneous holding myself responsible for my actions and accountable, but not guilty and not shameful. We choose who we are going to be each moment of each day and to dwell on my innocence and my delusional perspective of the past does nothing to help change the systems in the present and the future. It's just been a beautiful adventure with you in this conversation. And I just want to say to the audience, if you've never been to a Bioneers conference, it is mentally hugely stimulating, but also experiencing that unified field can teach a deep lesson about how this incredible world works. So Nina, this has just been really wonderful and I'm, I'm very grateful for you taking this time and this knowledge that you have and sharing it with all of us. It's my great pleasure and honor, Ayanna, and thank you so much for having me. Through the mountains like a river You've been listening to Nina Simons on the first For the Wild podcast. From Southern Cascadia, I'm the show's producer, March Young, along with our host, Ayana Young. The music we included today was Walk Like a Giant from Neil Young and Crazy Horse. We Shall Not Be Moved by the SNCC Freedom Singers, that is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. From the ground up, from Ayla Nerio's album Hollowbone. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River by Kate Wolf. Please visit the new website forthewild.world to find out about our initial reforestation and conservation goals, to get involved, or to make a contribution. Hope to see some of you at Bioneers. If you still haven't purchased a ticket, you can use the promo code forthewild 15 and receive a nice discount. Thanks for listening. Like a river.